All right. My name is Joel. I'm honored to be here. Uh, like Matt said, I'm uh, Acts 29 pastor in Point Loma, San Diego. And uh, by God's grace, we have many qualified men, um, elders in our church who are able to uh, carry the work there in my absence. So I'm honored to be here and uh, grateful to be with you this morning. Uh, what I want to do, by God's grace, this morning is I want to preach from an Old Testament passage. I want to take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 9. Um, it'll be up on the screen, thanks to modern technology, but for those of you who are old school and want to use a Bible, um, feel free to crack it open and follow along. Again, we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 9. I, I want to look at the whole text, um, so I'm going to read it uh, up front, and then what I want to do is I kind of give you, an, let me give you an itinerary, I guess, for this morning. I want to read the text, and then I want to kind of take, like in the movies or a TV show, take the camera and back it way up. So we can see a big picture of the Old Testament, the people of Israel, and, and then bring it all the way back down to 2 Samuel chapter 9. So give you a historical, uh, biblical background of you know, who, who is David, who is the, the guy that we're going to look at this morning, Mephibosheth, um, quite a name. Uh, so, so we'll have some context, we'll, we'll be able to understand these characters. And then I really just have one point this morning that by God's grace I hope to make. Uh, it'll be a quick point. Um, but hopefully something that blesses your heart and, uh, and empowers you to respond with more love and passion for Jesus than ever before. So uh, that's the goal. All right, so let's go ahead and read the text. This is 2 Samuel chapter 9. Feel free to follow along. The Bible says this. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant, that you should show regard for a dead dog? Such as I. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all of his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, so that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. All right. So I want to zoom way out, and I want to give you guys some biblical background, historical context, and... And then we'll zoom all the way back down to our chapter. So um, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and just the story of redemption throughout it, um, God builds a nation for himself from a man named Abraham. 
right? So we're going way back, way back. Uh, Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of them is Joseph. And uh, Jacob, really the Old Testament, if you look at it, it's just a rich heritage of bad parenting. That's really the, the, the sum of the Old Testament. If you just, you want to get the big picture, it's bad parenting and God's redemption in the midst of bad parenting. That's kind of the, the you know, nutshell version of the Old Testament. And so Jacob, he plays favorites. He loves Joseph more than his other children in a very, I mean, he doesn't even try to hide it. He's not subtle. Uh, he gives Joseph special treatment. Um, naturally, his brothers are jealous, and so they devise a, a scheme to you know, get back at Joseph. They sell him into slavery, into Egypt, and that was the better plan. That was one of the brothers saying, hey, let's take it easy on him. Let's just t- sell him into lifelong slavery, right? And so that, that, was, that, that was the merciful plan. And so Joseph, he goes to Egypt, but God is sovereign. He has a plan for Joseph. There's a reason why he's there. And uh, God is with him. And we see throughout the text again and again and again, God is with him. One of the things I love about the story of Joseph is it'll say um, things were really bad and then things got even worse and God was with him. And, and usually when we think of our lives, we think um, I got a promotion at work. God, God is visibly with me, you know, or my marriage is strengthening and, and healthier than ever. God is with us, you know, or, or we had a healthy child that was born to us and there's such a blessing and God is with us. Uh, the, the cool thing about the story of Joseph is like uh, things were really bad and then things got even worse. God was with him, um, which is which is there's a whole sermon to be preached there about suffering and how God uses suffering and how suffering does not mean that God is not with us, that God's not absent. Um, and so praise God for that. God is with Joseph and he uses suffering. And eventually Joseph is appointed as the viceroy of Egypt, uh, which is second in command under no one but Pharaoh himself. And God speaks to uh, Pharaoh through dreams, which Pharaoh has no idea what they mean, but God uh, empowers his servant Joseph to interpret these dreams. And, and the, the point of these dreams is uh, that Joseph would be prepared to make a plan, a strategy to protect Egypt and all the surrounding nations from a famine that God is going to send. And so all of a sudden, this famine hits the land and everybody's in trouble, but Egypt is ready for it because God has spoken to Joseph. And so they, they've stored up grain and produce and all these things. They're prepared for this seven-year-long famine. But Joseph's family, Jacob and his brothers and their wives and their children, they're, they're not prepared. They're not ready. And so they go to Egypt because they hear through the grapevine that in Egypt there's grain, there's food. And all of a sudden they find out, oh no, here's our brother Joseph. We were really mean to him. He's probably not going to give us any food. We're going to die. Um, and Joseph, luckily, he's uh, a God-fearing man. And so he forgives. And there's a reconciliation and, and restoration between him and his family. He invites him to come to Egypt to live there. Jacob comes, sees his favorite son, probably does some more bad parenting and probably says to his sons, I always liked him more than you, you know, and, all, and then Jacob dies. Jacob's, he's just for the record, Jacob is a horrible guy. And the whole point of Jacob's life is that God's very gracious. Um, God is just a gracious God. Um, but anyways, that's, you know, and so Jacob dies in Egypt, but now the, the Israelites, it, it's just this family. It's not really a nation, but uh, this family, ragtag group of people who all are kind of, you know, got some bitterness towards each other, but there's also healing and God's with them. They're in Egypt and in Egypt, they flourish and they grow and they multiply so much so that eventually Joseph dies and the Pharaoh who had a friendship with Joseph, he dies also. And the next Pharaoh um, he doesn't remember this Joseph guy. So he's, he's not, you know, he's like, who's Joseph? I don't care. He saved the whole nation with his strategy and hearing from God. Don't care. And, and he just looks and he sees all of Joseph's family 
that's now really becoming a powerful people, multiplying and multiplying. And he says, you know what? I think they're a threat. I, I think that these guys might actually be an opposition to the Egyptians. So he enslaves them. And, and Israel, are, they become slaves in Egypt for 430 years. But God is faithful. God is with them in the midst of their suffering. And he raises up a prophet and a leader, a deliverer for his people, Israel, uh, with a little boy named Moses. Moses is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And so he's raised in Egypt to be a ruler with authority and power. He's raised to, to lead. Moses was a powerful, powerful leader. And, and it's not just because God supernaturally made him a powerful leader. Uh, certainly God did that. Uh, but Moses was trained to be a powerful leader. If you, if you remember when no, Moses is brought before the burning bush, he has this experience with God when he calls him. And he says, you know, I can't, I can't be your guy. He makes all these excuses. One of them, he says, I'm slow of speech. Well, the, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, whether it's the Apostle Paul or another guy, we're not sure, but whoever wrote Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's the author that matters, um, the, the Holy Spirit uh, inspired the writer to say that Moses was powerful both in speech and in action. Mo Moses was trained for 40 years to be a ruler, to be a leader. He was a gifted order. He was a gifted speaker. Mo Moses, he had skills. He just... I think he was just really, really nervous when he was standing before God and, and told that he's got to do this insurmountable task. But anyways, God gives him his brother Aaron. Aaron is his mouthpiece, and they deliver Israel out of Egypt. Ten powerful plagues, parting of the Red Sea. Might have heard of that one. It's kind of a big deal. You know, the whole sea is parted. Uh, but God's people, of course, uh, don't trust God, much like you and I. Uh, God does amazing things, and we still don't trust him. And so God, you know, decides that I'm going to raise up another leader. And he takes this second generation of Israelites into the promised land of Cana. In Cana, there's a lot of work to do. God says, you know what? We need to, um, to drive out these nations. And, it's like, and this, this is where people get, you know, a little bit upset about the Old Testament, the, the angry God of the Old Testament that um, is pro-genocide, like wipe out entire people, men, women, children. Uh, these, these are wicked nations. Wicked nations. These aren't just nations that think differently and disagree, but we can all get along. These are nations that sacrifice their babies to Moloch and to false gods. These are babies, are nations, um, kind of like our nation. We sacrifice our babies, just for the record, in our nation. So these are nations like our nation. Our nation's not a Christian nation. Not anymore. It's not. Um, and so these are nations like our nation that, that truly do deserve to be wiped out entirely by God. It's only the grace of God that we still even have a nation, the way we've dishonored him, our unfaithfulness, um, the fact that God, God is so, so merciful. Anyways, the point is they're driving out these nations. Uh, they're obeying God. God doesn't want them to compromise their devotion for him. These nations, it's not just that they do bad things, but they worship false gods. They worship false gods that are powerless, like the, like the verse that was on the screen as we were singing and worshiping this morning, these false idols that are powerless, they can't speak, they've, they've never done anything, they're made by, by human hands, you know, and these nations are worshiping them, and God is concerned for the purity of the devotion of his people. And so he, he tells them to drive them out, and Israel does a lot of that, but doesn't really finish the job. Um, they're not completely faithful in that, and so some nations are still left, and, and devotion to the Lord is polluted. Joshua ends up dying, and Israel enters a season where the Bible says that each man did what was right in his own eyes, which isn't a good thing. Just spoiler alert. Doing what's right in your own eyes, is not, that's not a Christian biblical thing to do. Every, everybody's just making up you know, their, their own way. 
Doing what's right in your own eyes, that really wasn't the point of my sermon today, but that's probably another marker of our nation. Another way that we're very similar. Um, Everybody, each person does what's right in his own eyes, right? So that you're living truth and I'm living truth, even though they totally contradict each other and a logical person cannot say that both of these things are true because they totally contradict one another. And so, you know, insert relativism. Right? So like, well, maybe, maybe there aren't universal truths or absolute truths. Maybe, you know, truth is just something that kind of morphs and, and it's truth. You know, there's something true for you and something true for me. And, and here we are, everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. That's where Israel was. And so God raised up in his faithfulness, raised up leaders for Israel called judges. We have Gideon. He's one of the judges. We have Samson, right? God endows him supernaturally with, with strength to where uh, he's able to kill thousands of people with like, like a jawbone of a donkey in his bare hands. He's just like, like the, the hero of all heroes, just ripping people apart. The Old Testament's pretty, it's pretty awesome. I, I, I like the Old Testament. Maybe it's because I'm a guy, but uh, it's, there's some pretty awesome stories in the Old Testament. Um, eventually, though, God raises up for them another leader, uh, a prophet, uh, a little boy named Samuel. It's dedicated to the Lord. He's raised by the priest Eli in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant is. He, he grows up quite literally, literally in the presence of God. And, and at a young age, God calls him, Samuel, Samuel, in the middle of the night. He thinks it's Eli the priest, but he realizes that this is God, and God speaks to Samuel in powerful ways, uh, so much so that the Bible says not one of his words ever fell to the ground. Right? So he wasn't like occasionally prophetic. He, I mean, this guy was, when he spoke for God, it was prophecy. It was like 100% prophetic. This guy, I mean, he's the mouthpiece of God. And Israel, little by little, underneath uh, Samuel's leadership, their devotion for the Lord, it rekindles. And, and the people become more faithful towards the Lord than they were during, during the time of the judges. Uh, but eventually, because sin still exists in their hearts, they ask Samuel for a very wicked thing. Uh, they look to these other nations that they didn't completely drive out, that they should have driven out. And one of the things that all these other nations have that Israel doesn't have is a human king. And Israel, you know, was supposed to pride itself in the fact that it was separate and different from all the other nations. That God's people weren't supposed to be like all the other nations, um, but they wanted to be like the other nations. They looked at other nations and said, they have a king, and this king is a symbol of their power. He leads armies into battle. He gives courage to men. He fights fights for the people. Um, They weren't really thinking logically. Yeah, he fights fights for the people by, by taxing the people and drafting the sons of the people and sending them to war. They weren't really, I don't know what they were thinking, you know, and Samuel warns them. He's like, hey, let me, let me, you know, just clue you in here. If we have a king, he's going to take the best of your produce, the best of your lands. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. And the people are like, that doesn't sound so bad. They're just not thinking clearly. Uh, we want a king. We want a king. Uh, the thing that's so wicked about it is that God was their king. God was their king. And so in essence, um, they're not just rejecting Samuel as the one who is leading them as the prophet, but ultimately they're rejecting God, saying, you know, God as our king is not enough. We want a human king. We want to be like the other nations. And so Samuel's grieved. God is grieved. um, But God grants the request. And the very first king that Samuel under God anoints is Saul. And so Saul becomes the first king. And when he's anointed king, the Bible says that in the beginning of his rule, that he's small in his own eyes. He's humble. He doesn't think very much of himself. He's not boasting. He's not proud. Uh, but little by little, Saul begins to be too big for his britches. 
And he, you know, God anoints him and uses him in powerful ways. And as God uses him more and more, Saul starts to think that he's pretty cool and that maybe it's because of his own gifting and his own intellect and his own strength. And so Saul becomes presumptuous. He begins to do things that the king is not really um, allowed by God to do. He starts kind of stepping in for Samuel the prophet and taking up some of his tasks. And so God says through his prophet Samuel, Saul, you can still be king, but but your kingdom will end with you. I'm going to raise up another king outside of your house. It's not going to be one of your sons. They're not going to succeed you. Your house, your family, that that dynasty, it's not going to happen. And so God uses Samuel once more to anoint another king outside of Saul's house, a boy named David. He's a shepherd boy. He's the youngest of his brothers. um, And he's anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. And God gives him favor. And David fights many battles. He kills Goliath the giant. He gains favor with Saul. He's he's called to to work for Saul, to be in the palace. He begins as Saul's musician playing the harp whenever Saul's an emotional fellow. So whenever he's, you know, having one of his fits of rage, you know, then, then, you know, David would calm him down and play the harp. Um, But he quickly is promoted from harp boy all the way to commander of armies. and, And so David gets more and more... Uh, position and influence and power. Saul, Saul favors David because he sees how, how successful David is. And so Saul promotes him and promotes him and promotes him. And Saul likes David. And David works hard for the Lord and for Saul. He's, he's faithful to Saul. But eventually, uh, people begin to murmur and rumor. And even songs are written. Uh, songs like this one. that says, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And Saul's a very insecure man at this point of his life. Uh, he, the humility that he once had is long gone. And so Saul's like, what? I killed thousands. They attributed me thousands, but David tens of thousands. Uh-uh, not fair. You know, and he's, he's just, he's, he's not the guy that you want to be king. He's, he's insecure. He's arrogant. He's prideful. He's wishy-washy. He's highly emotional. And one moment he's laughing with you. The next he's trying to spear you to the wall. It's not the guy that you want to rule a nation, Right? <laughs> Another sermon, another parallel to our, our country. But anyways, um, uh, so, you know, so, so Saul's got some problems. And all of a sudden, he's jealous. He's jealous towards David. He's angry. And he's trying to kill David. And so David and, and some of his men who are faithful to him, they're hiding out in swamps. They're hiding out in caves. Uh, they're on the run for their lives because Saul wants him dead. Uh, but David is close friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. And Jonathan recognizes the sovereignty of God recognizes that God has anointed David to be the next king and, and recognizes that whatever the Lord decrees will come to pass. It will. It doesn't matter what anything looks like. What God decrees will happen. And so Jonathan has, has good theology of God's sovereignty and his authority over all things and that he does not fail when he makes a promise. And so Jonathan recognizes, look, David, I know you're going to be king. It doesn't look good for you right now. You're on the run. Saul's got the kingdom. He wants you dead. You've got a few guys who are all like, like basically, the Bible says a few guys who are in debt, who are cowards and cheaters and liars, just basically the worst men there are, those were like the guys who hung out with David and joined him. Like, we'll join you, David. You know, like the guys who, who basically the guys who couldn't join Saul because they probably were rejected because they weren't good enough, uh, that, that becomes David's mighty men, his team, you know. And so, so it doesn't look good for David, but Jonathan recognizes, I, I know one day you'll be king because it's not how it looks with you, David. It's not, it's not who your team is and who your men are. It's, it's your God. God has said this and God will do it. And so Jonathan asked David to make a promise. He says, will you promise me that, that when God brings you into your kingdom and when you become king of Israel, because I know you will, 
will you remember me? I, I know my dad has been a total jerk. I know my dad has tried to pin you to the wall with spears twice, I think it is, two times. I, I know he's tried to hunt you down. You've spared his life two times, and he, like, forgives you and gives you a hug, you know, and then, like, the next day, all of a sudden, wants to kill you again. And, and so I know my dad has not been very good to you, um, but I'm asking that you wouldn't remember my father, but that you would remember me. And for my sake, obviously not for my dad's, not for Saul, but for my sake, would you be kind to my house? Would you be kind to my family? If I'm alive, would you be kind to me? And if I have children and sons and daughters, would you be kind to them for my sake? Would you make that promise, David? And David says, yes. We see this in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14 through 15. It says this, if I am still alive, Jonathan speaking to David, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. David says yes. And now all of a sudden, eventually, Saul, he dies. And that's what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 9 in our main text today. Um, Saul, the king, he dies, and so does his son Jonathan. They die together in battle on the very same day. And so now David is the rightful king, uh, but it takes a while for all this to die down. There's a civil war in Israel. David has all these people like, yeah, David, he's the rightful king. But then there's still people like, it should be someone in the house of Saul. Saul's the true king. And so there's, there's a civil war in Israel. It takes a while for it to die down. The, the day that Saul and Jonathan die, it's not like David that very day comes into Jerusalem and sits down on the throne. People still want him dead. There's still, there's still a lot of bickering. There's still a lot of division in the kingdom. David has to hide out a little bit longer. But little by little by little, David and his house and his followers, his men, they strengthen, they grow, and little by little by little, Saul, his house, his followers, they shrink and shrink and shrink. Eventually, it takes a while, but David comes into the kingdom, he sits down on his throne, and he's in charge. Everything that God promised comes to pass, and at that moment, David remembers the promise that he made to his friend Jonathan, Saul's son. He remembers this covenant that he would do the house of Saul, Saul who's mistreated him, totally mistreated him, treated him horribly with cruelty, David promised that not for Saul's sake, but for Jonathan's sake, that he would be good to Saul's house, Saul's grandkids. I mean, can you imagine treating Saul's grandkids well? Well, but they're Jonathan's kids. You know, so it's like, ah, I don't like Saul, but, but I love Jonathan. And, and the, the love of Jonathan and his faithfulness and his friendship outweighs all the cruelty of Saul. And so David, he, he comes through on his promise. And when he's finally seated as king, when he's finally in power, the civil war dies down. David says, bring me anyone. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of the Lord to for the sake of Jonathan? And he's informed that there's a man named Mephibosheth and that he's a son of Jonathan. David says, bring him to me. All right, so where do we see a little bit about Mephibosheth besides our, our primary text for today? The only other place we see anything biblically about him is 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. It says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now, what I want to do at this point is I want to read a paragraph from my notes. And I want you guys just to try to visualize Mephibosheth. Um, try to imagine what it would be like to be this guy, to have his life. Let me, let me try to put it into perspective for us. See, Mephibosheth had a life of much hardship and suffering. He was an orphan. 
Both his father Jonathan and his grandfather Saul died in battle on the same day. Not only was he an orphan, but he had every reason. Think about this. He had every reason to believe that he was the king, King David's enemy, and that he would be the next one in line to be killed. Why? Well, the usual practice at that time was that when a new king came to the throne, he would take the entire family of the displaced king and have them put to death in order to eliminate the possibility of any future opposition. And even more so, considering, I mean, he probably has heard, uh, your grandfather Saul was king, and now David's king. David wants to take out his family to eliminate future opposition. Plus, on top of that, that, that's just the usual practice. Uh, Your grandfather was an absolute jerk to the new king. Right? And so if, if there was ever a king that would murder the whole displaced family of the displaced king, it would be David. He has no reason to like you whatsoever. Um, your, your grandfather, I mean, he was just, he was a terrible man, Mephibosheth. We don't know what to tell you. He was a terrible guy, especially to David. David wants you dead. So he's afraid. On top of all this, we read that as he's fleeing, as a five-year-old boy, He hears the news, Jonathan and Saul are dead, David's coming into power, David wants you dead, he's fleeing as a fugitive now, a five-year-old fugitive, and as he's being carried by his nurse, she drops him, and it must have been a heck of a drop, I don't know what happened here, maybe off a cliff or something, but he's dropped, and, and he's crippled for life as a result of this accident. The bones never mend in his feet properly so that he can never actually walk again. He's now dependent upon others to transport him from place to place. I don't know a lot about being a fugitive, but I imagine if there's one thing a fugitive needs to be able to do, it's run. And Mephibosheth can't. So can you imagine? Five. Five years old. You find out um, your crazy grandpa died. And, and that's probably not the best, you know, the worst news in the world. That maybe, I don't know, maybe it's like, I was hoping something would happen to grandpa. He's, you know, but but with, with grandpa dying, grandpa might have been crazy, you know, but grandpa was king. And grandpa made Mephibosheth royalty. Right? And, and provided security for the family. And so all of a sudden, hey, you're not royalty anymore. Grandpa's gone. You're not royalty. And, and your dad, Jonathan, your father. And, and Jonathan, was, I, he was a good man. And I, I, I think we could assume he was probably a pretty good father. Um, except for the fact that the Old Testament is filled with nothing but bad fathers. So maybe he was a bad father. I don't know. But anyways, uh, he's, you know, it's, I've lost grandpa. I'm not royalty. I've lost dad. We don't know where mom is. She, she may have been gone as well. Um, all of this, and, and the new king is somebody that grandpa mistreated again and again and again. He's going to want you dead. So now you're a fugitive. And as you're running, you find out at five years old on the same day, you're an orphan, you're not royalty, you're a fugitive, they want you dead, and boom, you get dropped off of a cliff or something, and both of your feet break, and the one thing you need to be able to do is run, and you can't even do that. All, that, talk about a bad day. Have you ever had a bad day? That's a bad day. That's a real, I mean, that's all in the same day. That's crazy. That's a bad day. Five. That's one of those bad days that you just don't recover from. Have you ever had one of those days? Right? Someone you love dies. Like you, you're, you're diagnosed with a terminal disease. You lose your job and you can't provide for your children. Like it's, it's one of those bad days. It's not a bad day that, you know, like, I can't wait to go to sleep and wake up tomorrow, you know, to get through this day. You're not going to get through this day. This day will become the next day and the next day. This day is not a day. It becomes your life. A day so bad, something so bad happens all in a moment. All in a moment. The worst things in life, they typically happen in one moment. Have you noticed that? The best things in life, too. Right? You get engaged in a moment. <laughs> a wedding happens in a moment. 
You have your first child and see them like in a moment. All, all in one day, the best things in life happen. Unfortunately, all in one day, sometimes the worst things in life happen. And, and some of these things, they're so bad, it, it, doesn't, just, it doesn't just make for a bad day. It, it makes for a bad future, a bad existence. I mean, Mephibosheth had a miserable existence. And some of you, maybe you feel like that. And, and imagine David, you know, he finds him and he summons Mephibosheth to his throne room. Like he's, I want Mephibosheth, bring him here. Mephibosheth, he's probably been told his whole life that David wants you dead. It's very likely. Uh, he, can't, he can't walk, he can't run, and all of a sudden the king's men grab him and we're bringing you to the king. I imagine he was terrified. And I imagine as he's being carried to David, the guy that he's been hiding from his whole life, and all of a sudden, the, the day, this day that he's been dreading, since that really bad day, the second bad day that he's been hoping wouldn't happen is that the king would find me and he would, he would summon me and he would execute me. And finally, this day has arrived. David has summoned him and for all he knows, he's being brought to the king to be killed. And I imagine as he's been being carried to David, he must have been thinking, reflecting on his miserable existence, his miserable life and thinking, why me? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever just had so much suffering and it doesn't let up? You know what I mean? It just never quits. Never quits. Other people, their lives are easy. Like they have bad days and, and like and when they share their struggles with you, it's like you're doing everything you can not to laugh at them. You know what I mean? Because their suffering is cute. Like it's like, it's like, it's not hard. It's like, oh yeah, I, uh, your suffering sounds like bliss. I would love your suffering. You want to trade? Like my life is hard and it doesn't ever let up. Every month I'm scraping by financially. Every day, someone in my family is sick that I'm having to care for. Like, all the time, it's just hard, hard. Even good days, when we laugh and things are easier, there's still just this, this underlining sense of just stress and dread. So much, you've, had, you've been stressed for so long, you don't even know what it's like to not be stressed. You can't even remember a stressless day. So even your joy, your joy is in the midst of stress. That kind of suffering. Imagine Mephibosheth is reflecting on a life like that. He's thinking about life has been hard. As long as I can remember, I can't even remember when life was not hard. And I imagine he must have been asking this question as he's being carried to the man that as far as he knows is going to kill him. And he might, I don't know, maybe he was relieved. Maybe he's like, you know what, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time just to leave this world. Life has been hard. I have no reason to think it will ever get any better. Maybe being executed by the king is... The, the best thing I have to look forward to. And I imagine him thinking, why me? Have you ever asked that question? Why, why me? No, nobody else, nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows the sorrow, you know? And it's like, why me? Why me? Everybody else, yeah, everybody suffers, sure, sure. But nobody suffers like me. Why me? And, and I imagine him asking this question, why me? Why me? Why me? And then finally, he's actually brought before David. And David says, I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And, and I love, if there's nothing else in the text, this, this is what I want to end on. If there's nothing else in the text, this is most beautiful, one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Look at Mephibosheth's response. He says this, David says, Do not fear, for I will show you the kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. You shall eat at my table always. Mephibosheth responds by saying, What is your servant? that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. 
you and I, you know, in our culture, pop psychology and all the stuff that's infiltrated the evangelical church called gospel, but it's not. It's an enemy of the gospel. You and I would probably talk to Mephibosheth and we'd say, dude, you need some healthy self-esteem. You got such a poor image of yourself. My brother, that's not what God wants for you. You know, a different, yeah, I'm, I'm Joel Webin, but there's another Joel that you might know from preaching. You know, brother, hey, Jesus doesn't want bad things for you. He wants your life to be wonderful and filled with roses and rainbows and all that kind of stuff. I'm from Texas, so I know how to do the draw. Um, we would look at Mephibosheth and, and our Christian culture today that is, that is bowed, in many ways, bowed its knees to the culture of our world and, and compromised just like the Israelites have. Um, and has not remained pure to God's word, we would look at Mephibosheth and say, dude, you have such a bad self-image. You have, you have no self-esteem. You know, a dead dog. You know, you're fearfully and wonderfully made, brother. You know, and, and you're a new creation. You know, like, don't call yourself a dead dog. That's limiting the Lord and his work. And, you know, but, but really, we're just, the Lord is just a means to thinking we're awesome. Have you ever thought about it? as a Christian, we'll talk about the new creation, and we're awesome because of the new creation, but we put on Jesus like clothing, like apparel, and then we look in the mirror and, and we worship how awesome we look wearing Jesus, but the fact that we're wearing Jesus makes it justifiable that we're worshiping how good we look. Did you, did you know Romans 1 when it talks about uh, exchanging the creator for, for worshiping created things, did you know that the new creation, what category would that fall into? If there's only two categories, creator and creation, all right, the key, key word, here's the hint, creation. Where would the new creation fall in, under? Would it, would it fall underneath the creator or would it fall underneath creation? Did you know you could even worship the new creation that God has done in a way that you're actually exchanging the truth of God for a lot and you're worshiping creation rather than the creator who is forever to be praised, Amen. Certainly, God, God gives us new hearts. Certainly, God puts His Spirit within us and causes us to delight in His law, in our inward being. We want to do what's right. We're new people. We're, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But, but that shouldn't change the fact that at the end of the day, from the dust we have come and from the dust we will return. Forever be praised in the name of the Lord. It's Him. It's not us. And anything we have, it's because of Him, not us. Mephibosheth, he had that right. Mephibosheth, he comes before the king. The king expecting his wrath, and he's surprised by grace. God's people, this is my big point, God's people should be surprised by the grace of the king. And, and I'm afraid that, that even in the church, as God's people, we, we, have, we have developed this sense of entitlement to where when God does us good, we think that that's what we deserve. And when suffering comes, we're surprised by that. First Peter says, when you experience all kinds of fiery trials and difficulties, do not act as though something strange was happening to you. Meaning, we're all enemies of God. We've all sinned against God. And certainly, if you're in Christ this morning, you're no longer an enemy of God. You've been adopted as his beloved son or daughter. But at the end of the day, you've committed treason towards the high king. All you're entitled to is his wrath. And when he showers mercy and grace on you, it should surprise you. And I truly believe one of the most biblical responses that you and I can have is, who is your servant? When God saves us, when God reveals himself to us, when God deepens his love and relationship with us, our response should be, who, who is your servant that you would be mindful of me, that you would consider and be kind to a dead dog like me? And, and the reason why, the reason, I love the parallel in this Old Testament passage to the gospel. 
In the same way that David showed kindness to Mephibosheth, not for Mephibosheth, but for the sake of Jonathan, our king, he shows kindness to his enemies for the sake of Jesus. In the same way, David, it wasn't about Mephibosheth. David was kind to him because of Jonathan. In the same way, God, our king, is kind to us because of Jesus. We stand in a righteousness that is not our own. Our righteousness, the best that we can do, it's filthy rags. It's filthy rags. We're dead dogs apart from God's grace, if not for his saving grace in our lives. Suffering is exactly, it's the only thing that you and I are entitled to. The grace of God should come like a, like a sweet spring rain. It, it should surprise us. It shouldn't shock us. It should knock us off our feet. Who is your servant that you would consider a dead dog like me? I deserve hell, and yet you've given me salvation. And all of it is not because of anything that I've done, but for the sake of Jesus. It's his life, his death, his resurrection, his sinlessness, his perfect obedience. It is for the sake of Jesus that God has kept his promise to you and I. That's the gospel. That's the way that Christians, that's the attitude that God wants us to have. That's, that's the message of the gospel. People cannot, in our culture today, even in the church, people cannot appreciate the good news of God's grace until they first admit and acknowledge and believe the bad news that they are enemies of God, committed treason against the high king, deserving nothing but his wrath. And when God seeks, just like David sought out Mephibosheth and found him, there are people, maybe in this room right now, you're sitting in church, but like Mephibosheth, you're a fugitive. You're on the run, hiding from God. And, and what I want to say today is this, God is seeking you down. He's running after you like a lion chases its prey. In the same way that David sought out Mephibosheth, he was hiding in the shadows. David found him and grabbed him and summoned him into the courtroom, into the throne room. And, and some of you, you've been hiding from God. You've been hiding from God for a long, long time. And, and like, just like the movie Taken, Liam Neeson, I wish I could do his voice. But, but God is saying to you this morning, I will find you. And I will surprise you with grace. I have a, a very particular set of skills. I, I will find you, and, and you think I'm going to lavish my punishment and wrath on you, but I'm going to surprise you by grace. I, I want to end with this quote from C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, this is Lucy speaking to Beaver. She says this, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. I'm sorry, that's Beaver. And then she replies, Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said me, Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Um, this morning, the king is pursuing your soul. He is chasing you down. There is nowhere that you can hide. If he has called you, he will save you. He will justify you. He will glorify you. He will find you. And some of you have been hiding from him for too long. I want to encourage you this morning. If God is seeking you, he is seeking you to do you good. And it won't be because of anything you've ever done. It'll be because of his servant, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that your love for us is not dependent on whether or not we're having a good day or a bad day. It's not dependent on our own works, our own righteousness, our own morals and effort, but, but God, your love for us, your steadfast, unchanging, never-ending love, it is contingent upon one thing and one thing alone. 
the shed blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus, it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It cries out for mercy, forgiveness, and grace. God, let your people this morning, let Infusion Church be a people who are humble and have a proper view of themselves and light of who you are. That people who are surprised by your grace um, and able to share the good news of the gospel with others. We pray all this in Jesus' name.